1: Hello everyone, and welcome to History of the Great War, episode 86. This week we continue with part 3 of our discussion of the Brusilov Offensive on the Eastern Front in 1916. Last episode we covered all of the run up to the launching of the attack, and this episode the guns start firing. Over the next 30 minutes or so, we will look at the bombardment before discussing just some general statements about how the attack began on both sides. Then we will dig in and take a bit more detailed look about some of the fighting, where we will start in the south and work our way to the north. One note here is that I will not be detailing all of the fighting. Instead, I will be focusing on the events of the Austrian 7th Army under General Flenser Bolton in the south and the Russian 8th Army under the command of General Kaladin in the north. There will be miles and miles of fighting on either side of these efforts, but we will just barely touch on it. We will then close out the episode with a look at the results of the fighting during the first few weeks of June, and its effects on both the Austrian and Russian armies. This would be a battle that lasted for months, and that meant that there were natural ebbs and flows in the fighting, and the first week from June 4th to June 11th was the first wave of the fighting, and maybe the most exciting, and so that's what we'll cover today. The artillery fire would begin at the nice hour of 4am on June the 4th, and it would continue for just 3 hours before it stopped. This was again that tactic where the artillery fire would go on for a bit and then it would stop while the Russian observers looked over the damage that had been caused. They looked for obvious signs of defenders and maybe what they were up to, and then just under an hour later it began again, and this time it continued until 6pm in the evening. This time, the Austrians thought that the attack was actually happening, and they let loose their planned artillery fire to interdict the attackers, except that the Russians were not actually attacking, and instead, they were still sitting in their trenches. For another hour, the Russians once again just observed the Austrian positions, and now they had the location of some of their artillery. And after about an hour, the bombardment began yet again. This time it would continue until the next morning, and then continue until 9 a.m., at which point it reached its maximum density. At the time the fire lifted to the next set of trenches, the Russian infantry went forward. The day of the bombardment had been a day in hell for all of the Austrian defenders. In some areas, like that of the 4th Army, there had been few casualties, and most of the men had successfully endured the bombardment in their protective defensive positions. In other areas, the men had been hit much harder. In all of these areas, the more exposed defensive positions had been destroyed by the firing, and the wire in front of the positions had been hard hit, with the Russians having little problem in opening enough gaps in the wire along most of the front. Although many of the weaker defenses were destroyed, the Austrians in their deep dugouts and shelters were mostly okay. The problem was, though, that the pauses that I mentioned earlier had been sort of screwing with their minds. They had conditioned the Austrians to not come out and man their defenses instantly. Instead, they would just stay in their dugouts when it paused, just for a little bit. Unfortunately, when the attack finally came, this would have disastrous consequences, as the Russians did a fantastic job of staying right behind their artillery as it advanced to the next line of Austrian defenses. When the Russians hit the Austrian and German trenches, They found an enemy that was greatly confused. They had been in their dugouts so that they could survive the artillery fire. But they had made two huge mistakes that would cause serious problems for the defense. The first was that the defenders did not properly account for how close the Russian jumping-off trenches had gotten to their defensive positions. In some areas, they were just 40 meters away. This led directly into the second problem which was the defenders emerging to man the defenses far too slowly. This meant that by the time that the men got out of the dugouts and into the trenches, the Russians were already on top of them, if they were even able to get out at all. This also meant that in some areas, the first line was overrun without a single shot being fired by the Austrians. In their account of the fighting, two Austrian officers would explain that, quote, In the shelters of the first trench, an Infantry Regiment 82, the men still had the roar of the barrage ringing in their ears, even though for five seconds it had no longer been directed against the trench. In the sixth second came some quick-witted person, perhaps cried, out into the trenches. And in the seventh second, he collided with someone in the stairwell, who, between mangled and splintered low-hanging beams, flung a hand grenade after him and in the 8th second, a voice from above called to the people in the shelter that they could give themselves up. All resistance would be useless. Basically, all of the amazing dugouts, which had served so well during the bombardment, had turned into death traps when the attack had come. The reserves in the 2nd and 3rd trenches were also usually too close to the front line, and they were swept up in the first series of attacks because they had the same problem a general failure to emerge fast enough from their dugouts to meet the attack. None of the defenders, at any point in the defenses, was helped by the huge amount of dust and debris that the bombardment had kicked up as it moved from one trench line to the other to allow the Russians to advance. Here is the account of one Austrian investigator, who reported after the attack that, quote, There was drum fire of hitherto unequaled intensity and length, which in a few hours shattered and leveled our carefully constructed trenches. Chaos broke out. Apart from the bombardment's destruction of wire obstacles, the entire zone of battle was covered in huge, thick clouds of dust and smoke, often mixed with heavy, explosive gases, which prevented men from seeing, made breathing difficult and allowed the Russians to come over the ruined wire obstacles in thick waves into our trenches, end quote. All of this confusion led to mass surrenders all along the front. In just an hour, the 4th Army alone lost more than half of its men to either action or just surrender, which, and this was, again, more than half of the army. In the 7th Army, they lost 131,000 men, which was even more than half during just the first day. The numbers were basically the same all along the front. Prisoners were captured by the Russians in the tens of thousands. In the first few days, the number would balloon up to be close to 300,000 men taken prisoner. If you look at the front as a whole, without zooming in too much, it looks like Brusilov's gamble was definitely paying off. He had committed all of his troops to a number of large offensives, and they were going pretty well. But let's move into some specific situations along the front to look at why, in some ways, it was everything the Russians could have wanted, but maybe not precisely what they needed. On the southern end of the front on June the 4th, it was a day of disaster for the Austrians and of great success for the Russians. Here, the Russian 9th, 7th, and 11th armies crashed into the Austrian 7th, 2nd, and the Sud army. Of these Austrian armies, the 7th was hit by far the hardest by a combination of the 9th and 7th Russian armies. Because of the importance of this area, it is the area that we will focus on in detail for this episode. And so for the next 5 minutes, when I say the 7th army, I will be referring to the Austrian 7th army. If I speak of the Russian 7th army, I will specifically call it out. This should lessen the number of times I have to say Austrian by about 20. And can I just say that it's very confusing that these armies all had armies that had the same numbers, like if they all just could have had very different, like one started one and count up, and one started 100 and count down, this all would be so much easier. So the 7th Army was commanded by General Pflanzer Bolton, and it was thought that it would be very solid, and that it could be counted upon to hold the line, at least as well as any Austrian unit at the front. Under pflanzer Bolten's command were eight infantry divisions made up of primarily Hungarian and Croatian troops, however, there were a smattering of Czech, Polish, and Ruthenian troops as well. These men occupied lines on either side of the Dniester River, and this river basically bisected the 7th Army's positions, which would present some problems as the action got going. The 7th Army was, on the whole, quite well prepared for the attack before it was launched, with preparation ramping up in rough parallel to that of the Russians. The biggest weakness of the 7th Army was that in early 1916, its four best divisions had been taken from it and first put in strategic reserve and then sent to Italy. These four divisions were well trained and had years of experience at the front and were therefore very difficult for the Austrian army to properly replace. While Pufflanzer Bolton was given units to replace them, he saw saw quite quickly that they were not as capable, and sort of just had to hope that the defenses that were being built by his army put him in a good enough position when the time came. He would, however, make some very important mistakes on a more tactical level that would cause his army to be put in a rougher spot than maybe would have been required one good example of these decisions was what happened with the 79th hanved infantry brigade and i know i'm going i'm zooming in way deep here with talk of individual brigades but stick with me so the 79th was brought into line not long before the attack started and they were brought in to replace a different brigade in the line The problem was that this brigade was much smaller than the 79th, and this meant that the positions at the front could not properly accommodate all of the 79th's men. This meant that when the bombardment started, not everybody could fit in the underground shelters. Because the shelters were absolutely packed to capacity, the men also did not really want to stay in them any longer than what was required. So when the pauses in the bombardment happened the first time, The men quickly got out of the overcrowded areas and moved back into the line, only to then be absolutely decimated when the bombardment resumed. The damage was devastating, and the survivors were very hesitant to leave their protection again, so when the attack did finally start, the men were even slower than most in getting back out to meet it. This is a great example of how a small problem, like putting too large of a unit on too small of an area up front, can cause huge problems later on. It's also a good example of why sometimes more men is not always necessarily better. On the far southern end of the southern end of the front, and I did not realize how ridiculous that phrasing was until right now, so so let me rephrase by saying the 7th Army's men south of the Dnester River were being attacked by the Russian 9th Army. The 9th was under the command of General Lekchisky, who used a series of rapid cycles of artillery fire, where he would have his guns pause for just 15 minutes and then begin again, then go through that cycle several times in the hours before the attack. This, coupled with the fact that the Russian lines were very close to the Austrians in this area, just 40 yards away at the closest, but generally always under 100, meant that by causing so many false alarms, it was almost a guaranteed success. So when the Russians did finally move the artillery fire off the front lines, the Austrians did not even make it out of their dugouts before the Russians were already on top of them. The 79th Brigade, which we discussed earlier, lost 4,600 men, out of just over 5,000. It took just three hours for the first Russians to advance all the way to their objectives, and there the attack was paused. This gave time for Provenzer Bolton to commit all of his reserves to the front, to the south of the river, and he put them on some high ground directly behind the front. When what was left of the frontline troops retreated to these positions with the reserves, they were able to use their increased numbers and the drastically decreased effectiveness of the Russian artillery to finally stop the Russian advance, and this line held for several days, even though increasingly large Russian attacks were launched against it. This may seem like a wasted effort by the Russians, but by drawing in and holding all of the 7th Army's reserves on the f- on the south side of the river, they were able to give the attack to the north of the river an even better chance of success when it finally got going. The reason that this opportunity was presented is because the attacks to the north side of the river did not go forward on the 5th of June like those to the south. Instead, they were on a slight delay. This slight delay was expected by Brusilov and was deemed to be acceptable. In this case, it was perfect. When the bombardment started 4 a.m. on the 6th of June, it would fall on troops with very few reserves behind their lines, with the strategic reserves of the 7th Army now sent to the south. When the attack was launched the next morning, initially the defenders did pretty well. They at least managed to keep the situation from turning into a rout. However, as more Russian troops moved forward, the Austrians, like in other areas, began to simply collapse. Thousands of men would surrender. The 13th Corps would basically cease to exist as a fighting force. By the end of the 7th of June, the 7th Army had to deal with the fact that the men to the north side of the river were in full retreat and there was nothing to give them to try and help stop the tide. As the men to the north retreated, they quickly exposed the men on the south side of the river, and the only option was then to order a retreat for those troops as well. pflanzer Bolton's initial plan was to retreat to the southwest, away from the pressure to the north. However, this could have caused a critical problem for the front as a whole. A separation of the 7th Army from the Army to its north would have opened a massive gaping hole in the Austrian lines. The 7th Army had begun to move in the southwest direction when news of this reached the Austro-Hungarian High Command, who were forced to order a change in direction. The 7th Army, regardless of how bad of their specific situation, had to retreat directly west to keep the front coherent. With the 7th Army in retreat, the Russians had a golden opportunity to push forward. However, they were not able to pursue as hard as they would have liked for two reasons. The first was that the Austrians were still able to turn and fight some pretty good rear guard actions to slow the advance. When this happened, the Russians were not nearly as effective as they had been at the beginning of the attack. It was becoming obvious that without their carefully stockpiled and registered artillery bombardments to assist them in the attack, the Russian infantry was just as incapable as they always had been. The second problem was that the Russians, like every attacking army, were beginning to outrun their supply lines. These two problems came to a head when in the middle of June the northern flank of the 7th army stabilized when a scratch group of reserves and dismounted mounted cavalry finally stopped the russian advance this represented basically the last of the 7th army's reserves but it did cause the russians to pause their northern advance and instead shift their focus back to the south this shift in focus again caused a cascading failure along the front, and their retreat continued. When asked by high command why his men were not able to turn and fight, Plifanzer Bolton would say of one of his core situations that, quote, There is at present absolutely no possibility of holding against the enemy attack. The decision to attempt it would lead to the total destruction." As the retreat continued, the need to keep in contact with the Sud army to the north and continue to guard the Carpathian passes to the south began to stretch the 7th army. Much like when you attach a string on, on two ends and pull in the middle, it can stretch and the 7th army was doing that. But at some point, if you pull that string too far, if you put too much pressure on it, it will break. One benefit of this increase in the frontage of defense was that the Russians also had to keep expanding their area of attack. In fact, Leshitsky was forced to split his forces into groups that had little contact with one another, just to continue to push forward. This allowed the advance to continue but made it much weaker and made it easier to slow down as each group could be slowed individually. All of these problems climaxed on the 15th of June, when the 7th Army was told that they would be receiving no more men, no matter how bad the situation became, as they were these men were being used elsewhere, there was simply nothing available. This was probably the moment of greatest concern for the 7th Army and perflanzer Baltim, but they did get a reprieve for two reasons. The first was that the German 105th Division came into the line to their north, which stiffened that area and blunted the Russian advance closest to the sud Army. The second was that it was becoming clear that the Russians were running out of steam. While the retreat would continue for another week, the risk of the 7th Army disintegrating, which had been a real concern for about a week now, had finally faded. On the northern wing of the attack on June 4th, all eyes were on the Russian 8th Army, under the command of General Alexei Calden. Brusilov had always preached the necessity of attacking on a wide front, but this did not mean that there was not a primary point of effort. And for this offensive, and for the entire southwestern front, that emphasis was the 8th army. Kaladin would be attacking on a 48-kilometer front, and under his command would be enough men to give him a 50,000-man advantage over the defenders. This may not seem like a ton in the grand scheme of the war, but for this particular offensive, it was huge. Kaladin also had under his command 300 artillery pieces in almost the entirety of the Russian reserves. If there was any hope of true victory to come out of the attacks on the southwestern front in June, it was from Kaladin's men, and they would go forward on June the 5th. On that day, much like in the south, the Russian forces would quickly start to roll over the Austrian and German positions ahead of them. Some Austrian divisions would lose more than half of their men. Many did, in fact. General Linsingen, the German commander on the northern side of the attack, simply could not react fast enough. By the time he decided that he should send in reserves, and where precisely he should send them, the Russians were already through the first of his positions. The men who were sent forward were also thrown into the fire piecemeal, with small units trying to either counterattack or simply hold positions in isolation from other efforts, and this meant that many were just chewed up in the Russian steamroller without greatly contributing to the defense. Linsingen was forced to order a retreat across the board at 10pm, right around the time that it also started to rain. To his south, the hardest hit troops were under the command of Archduke Joseph Ferdinand, Here, his men were in disarray and were forced to retreat to the city of Lutsk. The Archduke had the foresight to properly entrench Lutsk with concrete fortifications and large belts of wire all the way around the city, just in case this type of disaster were to happen. And now the Austrians retreated to these positions and others on the east side of the river Stier. Here, the men retreated and settled into positions that had been created in 1915 but were not really manned since then. These positions were decent in quality with two defensive lines. However, with their backs to the river, and the only way to cross being the nine bridges over the river in this area, it was a precarious position. There was also a critical weakness in the line around the key to the entire position of Lutsk. This weakness was the hills to the south of the river that made up a ridge that overlooked all of the defenses. Here the defenders found themselves quickly having to retreat after Russian attacks, and this allowed the Russians to base artillery here with perfect sight lines to the defenses around Lutsk and the surrounding area. As the shelling began, panic spread among the troops, causing some to simply break and collapse. It was now becoming crystal clear to the commander of the 10th Corps, General Martingy, that his men who were occupying the positions on the east side of the river, had to be withdrawn. If they stayed in their positions and they proved indefensible, they would be cut off and quite possibly completely destroyed. He would actually give the orders to prepare to destroy the bridges, only to then be dismissed from his command for this action. As he was replaced, nobody wanted to be the one to order the army to cross the river. It had to escalate all the way up to the top of army command, with each commander passing the buck up the chain, before somebody was able to order the retreat to happen. This order did not solve all of the problems for the men on the east side of the river, though, because as they began to pull back and cross the river, some of the troops controlling the explosives to destroy the bridges blew them up too quickly, trapping thousands of Austrians on the other side, soon to be prisoners of war. And so Lutsk, which could have been a solid area of defense for the Austrians, had been forced to surrender, with 50,000 men and 77 guns along with it. Because of one small problem in the defensive plan, this is how war goes one small thing happens and everything falls apart. With what was left of the Austrians across the river, the Russian advance began to slow more because the men had outrun their supply lines instead of some great Austrian defensive resurgence, although, of course, the river helped. Kaladin, quite frankly, had been surprised at the complete success of the attack and was not truly ready to follow it up. On the very first night of the attack, he had called a halt to the advance to reorganize his men and refocus their effort. By the time they came to the steer... They were 75 kilometers from where they had started, over country hard hit by artillery, and it was becoming quite difficult to continue to feed the beast, not to mention how completely disorganized and confused most of the Russian units were. However, by the 10th of June, the 8th Army was regaining its composure and was ready for another effort. Kaladin would send forward the 32nd Corps, a unit that was mostly fresh. Their objective was to advance past the steer and onto the city of Koval, and that is a story that we will save for next week. Let's take a step back and take a look at how each side of the line was feeling in about the middle of June. When the attack initially started, disaster had struck for the Austrians. Hundreds of thousands of men had surrendered as the retreat first started and then continued far longer than anybody had expected. With each step westward, the morale of the Austrian troops declined. The first affected were the men, who were basically spending their days fighting off the Russian advances before continuing their retreat every night. Then it affected the artillery, with one Russian observer saying that, quote, "...although the artillerists know their business well, they did not now have the courage to do their duty to the infantry. Batteries made off to the rear much earlier and much more rapidly than they should have done." And left the infantry to its fate. End quote. These feelings then also began to trickle all the way up the chain of command, right up to Conrad's staff. As this failure and the search for the reasons for it got higher and higher up the chain, the more that a search for a scapegoat intensified. Stur- stories circulated that the Ruthenian and Polish troops were surrendering in massive numbers without any reason but then there were also stories that said it was actually the Czech and Moravian troops, and then that it was actually the Jewish soldiers. All of these were used by the Austrian commanders as a way of sidestepping, placing any blame on the commanders themselves, preventing any true introspection and actual fixing of the problems. As a general statement, the ethnicity of a particular division did not have much of a correlation to its performance in 1916. For example, the 7th Army was made up of five Slavic, one Polish, one Ruthenian, one Croatian, and two Czech divisions, so a pretty wide set. And the number of prisoners and casualties that each had had far more to do with where they were in the line than on their soldiers themselves. This behavior, this search for ethnic scapegoats, was a constant problem for the Austrians throughout the war and resulted in a situation where the commanders were constantly blaming their soldiers instead of their tactics. The situation only got worse as most of the troops were kicked out of their prepared positions after June the 4th, and they were forced to fight in the open field, where their training and skills, or more appropriately, lack thereof, really began to show. During the height of the retreat, the high command was forced to release the proclamation that said, quote, Every man in the army must be aware that he is fighting here to decide the campaign and to decide the fate of the fatherland. End quote. The Austrians would not immediately receive the thing that had always saved them in the past, German assistance. Falkenhayn believed this new Russian attack was nothing more than a spoiling attack, a feint, to try and distract the Germans from the real effort that Evert would launch to the north. But even if more German soldiers were not flooding to the front, it did not mean that Germans were not already taking control of the situation. In the north, Linsingen essentially took over command of all of the northern sectors. This after he strongly advocated for the Archduke and some of his generals to be relieved of their commands for complete incompetence. Regardless of who was in command, though, the troops were beginning to lose faith, and unfortunately for them... The defeats were not even close to being over. After discussing the horrible situation for the Austrians, you might be surprised to know that I'm about to talk about how the initial impetus of the attack was pretty much spent by this point. The first step of the Brusilov offensive had been achieved, the line had been breached, and unlike the previous Russian efforts, they had done it on a large enough scale to really be useful. However, by the night of June the 10th, they were reaching the end of their abilities. First of all, they were running away from their supplies with penetrations over 50 kilometers. This was more complicated as the army started to cross rivers and other natural obstacles, like the steer to the west of Lutsk. Second, while we have spoken quite a bit about the catastrophic Austrian casualties, the Russian casualties had been large as well. This could have been made good by Russian reserves, which the Russians had, but they were not under Brusilov's command. There were tons of troops to his north under Evert, who should have been attacking with him, but they were not. A situation that we will discuss next episode. So Brusilov now had to find the appropriate thing to do with the few men that he had. And that meant he had to stop attacking along the entire front and pick some direction to go in. But then he ran into the classic eastern front problem... Where the hell were they going, really? The distances between real objectives were huge. He could either go directly to the west to fully capitalize on the advances of Kaladin, or he could go to the northwest towards Koval to hopefully benefit the most from Evert's impending, theoretically impending, attack. The first option had the advantage of hitting the Austrians harder and pushing them towards more important areas. Many military historians, and Brusilov himself, would say after the war that advancing to the west would have been the correct call in this instance, but it was not what was chosen in 1916. Instead, Brusilov decided to focus his efforts on advancing to the northwest and towards the city of Koval. This did have its advantages particularly in that it would put Kaladin in the perfect position to both assist Evert's attack and also benefit the most from it if it was a success. To accomplish this new goal, Brusilov transferred men and artillery to the northern flank of the 8th Army. And we will pick it up next episode as the Russians prepare for their second effort and the drive towards Koval. Oh, and maybe Evert will finally do something, anything, other than just sit on his hands. Oh!